So anyone here like choices? I went to buy some deodorant a couple of weeks ago, and I'm like, you need a bachelor's degree and a thesaurus to buy deodorant. And toothpaste is even worse. You need a PhD, right? Just are you kidding? All right, so Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, gospel of the kingdom. Jesus did not go to seminary and he didn't learn that you conclude a message, positive, encouraging, K-lovey. So he does not. He starts with the Beatitudes, the blessings, and he's ending with the bewares. Look out, this is coming for you. And if you have read ahead, and chapter seven is a great one, to read ahead in, Jesus just gives two choices, that's it. Not a lot of choices, there's only two. There's only two paths to go down. You can go down the narrow path that is hard, but it leads to life. Or you can take the broad, easy path that brings destruction. Jesus says there's two kinds of teachers. So be really, really aware and look for wolves in sheep's clothing because they're gonna be out there. There's good teachers and bad teachers. Good trees and bad trees. Trees that bring forth rotten fruit and trees that bring forth good fruit. Two, 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 two. And you may have been sitting here thinking, ah, it doesn't apply to me. I'm okay. I'm not teaching the Bible, so you know, no big deal. Well, Jesus now turns his aim to the seats. Every single one of us, that's who Jesus is gunning for right now. And Jesus is gonna say this, there's only two kinds of people. That's it, only two. Those that are in and those that are out, that's it. That's the only two groups, saints and ain'ts, in, out, right, wrong, that's it. Some of the hardest teachings in scripture are right here by Jesus. Maybe his hardest words ever, by far his hardest words in the gospel of the kingdom, in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is taking aim at people that believe they're on the inside. People that are convinced that they're saints. People that are convinced that they are believers. That's who he's aiming at. So are you ready? Let's read. Verse 21, Matthew chapter seven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Where are these people trying to get? Trying to get to heaven, right? But the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, what day is this? The day we stand before the risen King Jesus. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Wow. Anyone have Matthew 7, 23 tattooed on their arm? Right? Nah, no. This is a wake-up call to a group of people that I call them assumed Christian. Christian. 
I just assume I'm a Christian. I go to church. In fact, when I'm in church, I only looked at my phone like three times. The dude in front of me, man, he was on Facebook the whole time. Like I listened to the sermon. It was good. I have automatic giving. Automatically, just every month it takes out a certain percent. I just have automatic giving. Are you kidding? I have a shirt that has a Bible verse on it. Can't remember what it is, but it's a great verse. This is this group of people. They're assumed, I'm assuming I'm a Christian. I'm assuming I'm the inside. And Jesus gives us their DNA. This is what they look like. Number one, they're religious. They say, Lord, that's the Greek kurios. So when the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek, they had to figure out what word do we use for the covenant name of God, Yahweh? How do we translate Yahweh into Greek? They chose kurios. So what they're saying here is Jesus is Lord. And that's really good doctrine. They have dead lives, but really good doctrine. They're religious. They're passionate. They say, Lord, Lord, twice. In the Hebrew, if you wanted to show that you're really passionate, you'd repeat something twice. So when David's son Absalom is killed and he's mourning, just passion coming out of me says, Absalom, Absalom, my son. When Jesus is ministering to this anxious, stressed out lady, he says, Martha, Martha. We already know this. Parents, you know this. Kids, you know this. If your mom or dad is, they're passionate and they want to get your attention, they don't use your nickname, do they? They don't use your first name. What do they say? Myron Jude Heverly, Elijah John Heverly, Carissa Jaden Heverly, right? Use the entire name. That means, all right, it's coming down. It's passionate. These are the people with their hands raised, knees bent, amens and hallelujahs. But what are they missing? What are they missing? Words aren't enough, are they? So hypothetically, let's say this conversation has happened in your marriage. You've been married 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years, whatever it is. And this conversation takes place. So your wife comes to you, husband, and she says this. You've stopped, let's say, just fill in the blank. You've stopped saying, I love you to me. So as a husband, you say, note to self. I need to say I love you more often to my wife. So that evening, you're like, okay, you're getting ready for bed. So what do you say to your wife? I love you. Now, as a husband, we think, yeah, nailed it. But the wife says, you only said that because I told you to say it. To which the husband says, yeah, that's why I said it. Because you told me to say it. Well, it doesn't mean anything if I have to tell you to say it. And us husbands just go, oh, this is too complicated. <laughs> What's the wife saying? I want a life that is shaped in such a way that you naturally look at me and you naturally say, I love you. Not because you have an alarm on your iPhone that tells you at 8.30 p.m., say, I love you to your wife. That's what she's saying. You're missing something. Words are not enough. The Bible over and over says they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's the idea right here. But it gets even worse because they're not just speaking stuff. 
They're active. Look at this. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Look at that list. Who here prophesies? One in a hundred, let's say. Who here does spiritual warfare where you are casting out demons? One in 10,000? And then just a gigantic bucket of mighty works, taking wood to widows, feeding the poor, opening an orphanage in Mongolia, going to the prison and visiting people shut in in prison, preaching the gospel, leading people to Jesus, street evangelism, rehab, detox, right? You're just like, wow, who does all this? I have yet to meet the person. Yeah. What are they missing? When you look at this, what are they missing? Here's what I think is a miss in this group of people. Number one, they're silly. Proverbs 27.2 says this, let another man praise you, not yourself. What are these guys doing? They are standing in front. This is the scene. They are standing in front of the risen, glorified Jesus, bragging about what they did. Silly. John the apostle hung out with Jesus for three and a half years. Jesus' best buddy. When the risen, glorified Jesus appears to John in the book of Revelation chapter one, John doesn't high five him. Guess what John does? He falls down as if he was dead because the risen glorified Jesus is something else now. He's back where he's supposed to be in glory. No one will stand before God and brag. No one's going to do this right here. This is silliness. When you read the Bible, when God shows up, people don't brag. David, zenith of his kingdom. He's at the top. 2 Samuel chapter seven, defeated all of his enemies. He's got cash. He's at the top. God shows up and tells him something. He says, David couldn't even stand up anymore. He sits down and just says, who am I? And who's my family? Book of Job, read it. For 37 chapters, Job's like, I want to talk to God. I want to meet him with God. If only God was right here, I'd tell him the way things are. God shows up in chapter 38. And guess what Job says? I despise myself. I'm dirt because no one brags in front of God. Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah has for five chapters been pointing out the wrong in everyone else. And then God shows up in the temple and the temple is literally being torn apart. And this is what Isaiah says. He says, I'm a man undone. Literally in the Hebrew, I am being ripped apart right now. I'm a man of unclean lips because no one stands before God and brags. John the Baptist, I'm unworthy to tie his shoe. The centurion, I'm not worthy of you to come to my house. The Syrophoenician woman, I'm a dog. Peter, depart from me, I'm a sinner. Paul, the closer he got to God, the more he said, I am the chief of sinners because no one will stand before God and brag. And you know what? God never corrects anyone. God's never, oh, you're not that bad. Oh, come on, buck up. My favorite is Isaiah 41 where Jacob is called a worm. God doesn't say, oh, you're not a worm, Jacob. You're a caterpillar. And one day you'll just bust out of your little shell and you'll be a butterfly and you'll fly away. God doesn't say that. This is what God says to him. You worm Jacob, fear not, because I'm with you. Like, yeah, you're a worm. Don't be afraid, because I'm with you. 
It's silly because they're bragging in front of the risen, glorified God. Are you kidding me? Early in this sermon, Jesus has said, you can do really good things for the wrong reason and it gives you zero value. You can pray and you can fast and you can give. If it's for the wrong reasons, it has zero value to you. Yeah. My philosophy for preaching has been real simple. I have the mic. I could make myself a superhero if I wanted to. I could tell all the stories about everything that I, because I got the mic. I have chosen to do the opposite. I tell stories about how boneheaded I am. And the great thing about that is I have 51 years of data and it keeps being added to it every single year. Got more and more stories of boneheadedness. Because here's what I've noticed about great men of God. They're humble. They have a humility to them. One of my favorite examples is a guy named William Carey, founder of modern missions. In the 1700s, missions had just ceased. We weren't doing them anymore for some reason. And so in 1790, this shoe repairman named William Carey said, we gotta go preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. So he starts, he's called the father of modern missions, goes to India, translates the entire Bible into 20 languages. Think about that for a second. He knew 21 languages. English plus 20 other languages. And then he translated parts of the Bible into 14 more languages. He had mastery of 35 languages. He is a linguistic genius. So after this, he has this big dinner and he goes to this big dinner and he's sitting at this dinner and it's all these dukes and whatever they have in England, right? All these important people. And one of them says this to him, just a snob. Oh, Mr. Carey. I hear you're a shoemaker, to which William Carey, father of modern missions, knows 35 languages, says this, oh no, I'm not a shoemaker, just a shoe repairman. I love that. Just a humility. I'm not gonna brag in front of you. It doesn't matter. These guys right here, it's silly. They're bragging. Number two, here's what they miss, the source. There are two power sources in the world. Like there's gas cars and electric cars. There's two power sources in the world. There's God and there's a satanic power. So when Moses, God's man is called in to take the message that he alone is God to Pharaoh. Moses has sign number one is throw down your staff. And what does it turn into? A snake. But Pharaoh has these magicians. And these magicians weren't told ahead of time to kind of create an illusion or figure out a trick. They weren't told ahead of time that this was gonna happen. And these magicians, what do they do? They throw down their sticks and what do they turn into? Snakes as well. Now Moses' snake does eat their snakes, which is an omen, but they're able to do this powerful miracle. Then Moses turn and turns water into blood. Once again, without them being told in advance, this is gonna happen so they can't create an illusion they're able to turn water into blood as well. He summons frogs. They summon frogs. They were working with a different power source. When Jesus is tempted by the devil, the devil has the power to take Jesus somewhere up on a gigantic mountain where Jesus can see all the kingdoms of the world. That's a power. And say, listen, if you will bow down and worship me, I'll give these to you. That's a power. In the book of Acts chapter 16, there's a woman who is possessed with a demon. And that demon gives her the power to 
tell things about people that they did not know, that, that she should not know and, and predict. And it gives her pimps a lot of money because she's got power. In Acts chapter 19, there are these dudes that go around, they're called itinerant exorcists, where they are able to go in and cast out demons somehow. They're called the seven sons of Sceva. And finally they meet their match. They go into a house where there's a man with a demon and they can't get the demon out. So then they resort to something. They say, well, we are asking you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches to come out of this man. And the demon, the man said this, Jesus, I know, Paul, I'm acquainted with, but who are you? And then that one man begins to fight with these seven guys. And the end result is the seven guys run out of the house naked. Now I have a real simple thing. If you start a fight with pants on and you leave without pants, you lost, right? Pretty simple right there. That's a power. There's two power sources right here. The Bible says this about Satan, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14. Satan can masquerade as an angel of light. He can do all kinds of brilliant light things that we think, oh, that must be God. And it's not. It's why John says this in 1 John 4, 1, test the spirits, test them. Who's getting the glory? Is it people bragging like this? Who's getting the glory? Does God get the glory? Does it honor Jesus? Does it proclaim the good news? Who gets the glory? Test the spirits. And here's what I know. Gospel works always bring about their own glory, bring about their own story. That's what I know, right? You don't have to brag to yourself, just that simple. So Jesus's assessment of everything that this group did, prophecy, casting out demons, good works, Jesus's assessment of them is what? Look at the end of verse 23. It's really, really sobering. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Not even neutral. This is actually, you're evil. You're going against my kingdom by the stuff you're doing, by your prophecy, by your mighty works, by your casting out of demons. It's actually lawlessness. You're against me. So what does Jesus say to them? These religious, orthodox, good-working kind of people that are full of pride, what does Jesus say to them? I never knew you depart from me. I never knew you. Depart from me. How sobering is that? There are different ways to look at this Bible, to dice it up and kind of, hey, have kind of meta-narrative of it. Here's my meta-narrative of scripture. It's one thing, we're to know God, relationship. When God creates the garden, he puts Adam and Eve in it. It says this, that God would go in the cool of the evening and walk and talk with Adam and Eve to know him. Abraham, this major figure in the Bible, you know what he's called? The friend of God. What a great thing to have on your tomb. Abraham, the friend of God. Brilliant. Jesus, when he sums up the entire Bible, he said, this is what it's all about, to love 
the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your strength. And the second command is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All of scripture rests on those two ones, period. This book is about relationship. That's what it's about. The words used about you and me in our relationship to the Father are what? Adoption, family, heirs. Who are the heirs of the inheritance? Who gets the inheritance? Family, right? Kids get the inheritance. That's who. We know this. Relationships trump everything else. But there's a danger. There's a danger where we think doing is the same thing as knowing. They're not. Doing and knowing are two different things. So I did this marriage counseling with this couple, and this is 15 years ago. And I was trying to figure out why they were even here talking to me because the husband seemed great. And it was the wife that initiated the whole conversation. So I'm asking the husband, like, hey, what, tell me about it. And he was a good provider, worked hard, paid all the bills. Like he would come home from work and he would cook most of the dinners. I'm like, man, you got me beat because I rarely cook. Like, wow, you're awesome. Take the kids to school, drop them off, like mow the lawn. Like there was no complaint at all. Like I'm like, what in the world? What's going on here? This guy's amazing. And so I'm starting to probe like what's going on. So I asked him this question. I said, well, do you have a temper? Because I'm just trying to figure out why you're here. Do you have a temper? And the guy's like, no, I'm really even. I've never struggled with anger or temper. And the wife just peaked. Like all of a sudden, just she snaps up. And this is what she said. She said, I wish you would get angry. I'm like, well, that's a first. All right, not now, but that's a first, wow. And this is what she said, because then I know you care. Uh-huh. See, he was doing everything right, but they were just roommates, I found out. They're just roommates. He had the checklist, checklist of the perfect husband, but man, there was no knowing, just roommates, that's all they were. There has been a demonic deception from time immemorial to get you and me to do without ever knowing, to keep our checklists perfect, but we, we never actually know Jesus. It reminds me of this, this book I read called Wise Blood, I read it a long time ago by Flannery O'Connor. Actually, when I read the book, because just the the nature of the book and the name, I thought it was a dude. And turns out, Flannery O'Connor's a gal, brilliant writer. And there's a, the character, the main character in this book, it's kind of his progress from what he was to faith. And there's a sentence, I had to write it down when I saw it because I'm like, that's it. It's a quote from wise blood, Flannery O'Connor. And this is the main character. There was already a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. If I can just get my checklist right, if I just do all the things that I'm supposed to do and make it look like I'm the right kind of person, then I'll not need Jesus. This is this group right here. Great checklist Christians, great checklist husbands, but Jesus is gonna say to them, I don't know you. Notice Jesus not, does not say, I, I, I grew apart from you or we, we, our relationship has been damaged. Jesus says, I never knew you because 
to have ever known Jesus is to have always known Jesus. This is the assumed Christian. So Jesus, Jesus is pointing the target at every one of us. Do we know him? So you gotta ask the question, how do you know Jesus? Or looking at this story, what does this group fundamentally get wrong? Salvation, don't they? Isn't the fundamental that they get wrong? Salvation. When you stand before King Jesus on that great day, the risen glorified God, and you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, just like these guys do. Verse 21, why should Jesus let you in? Are you gonna present to him prophecy? Spiritual warfare? Mighty works? Is that the key to the pearly gates? No. Jesus actually calls it lawlessness, a demonic deception. So what's the key? What's the works? How do we get in? Jesus was asked this question by a group of people. It's the gospel of John chapter six, verse 28. They come to Jesus and they say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What's the checklist? Give it to us, Jesus. What is Jesus's answer? Jesus answered them. This is singular. This is singular. The work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. It's faith. What was this group missing that had all the doing? They're missing salvation by faith in Jesus alone. That's the key that unlocks the pearly gates. Nothing else does. That's the demonic deception that you and I can somehow work and earn our salvation, right? This is so huge. It's fundamental to being a Christian. If you miss this, you're like a meat-eating vegetarian, right? You can call yourself a vegetarian, but you're not right? You're like a swimmer that doesn't want to get wet. Well, you're not going to swim then. It's that fundamental that I am saved, not because I prophesy or do spiritual warfare or go to church or pray or have the bumper sticker or have the church, whatever it is. I am saved by grace, by the grace of Jesus Christ alone, period. And I put my faith in his finished work on the cross. That's salvation. That's the key that unlocks the pearly gates. That's what I'll say on that day, period. And you know what? Grace is actually hard to believe in. It's much easier to believe in works. Do you know that? Every one of us has built into our DNA a desire to deserve it. I deserve what I got. I worked hard for it. Look at all this list that I did. We all have that in us and it drives us. It's a master, a task master. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. We all have it. We all wanna have the seven steps and you can do it too, just like me. If you, if you did it like me, you'd be successful too. I'll write the book. No one writes the book, I'm a moron, but God is good. That's the book that needs to be written. I'm a moron, but God has been so good to me that he saved me. 
and gave me free salvation, period. There's only one group that I know that receives grace gracefully. You know who it is? Your little kids. When your kids are little, did you ever have one of your kids, maybe they're not acting right, and you give them just a, a great gift. Do you ever have one of your kids say, nah, you shouldn't have, dad. You know, it's too much. No, thanks, dad. Never. What do they do? Yeah, all right. They just enjoy it because they get grace. We gotta come to Jesus like little kids and just receive his grace gracefully. I didn't deserve this. Because you know what? Kids don't have any other options. They don't have a Roth IRA. They don't have a bank account. Dads and moms are the only option for them. I think the American church has to get back to Jesus is our only option. We got all these options today, don't we? We got money. We got psychology and sociology and we got these methods and these techniques and TED Talks and medication. We've got all these options now. I think the Christian church needs to get back to Jesus is the option. For my broken marriage, Jesus is the option. For the drug addict, Jesus is the option. For my parenting, Jesus is the option. For the pregnant teen, Jesus is the option. That's what I think we gotta get back to. For my depression and my hopelessness, it's Jesus, period. That's where the kingdom begins. So you read this and you have to ask yourself this question. Have I trusted Jesus alone? Have I trusted Jesus alone for salvation? When I get there and stand before him, what will I say to him on that great day? Will I present my lists? Did I not prophesy? Did I not do spiritual warfare? Did I, or will I say, I know you and I love you. And I believed in you alone for salvation. What will we present? Our faith or our works? Will we hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter in? Or will we hear, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness because that day is coming for every one of us. And the key, Jesus says it, this is the work of God, to believe in the one whom he sent. That's the key.